first in chapter 2 and then in chapter 4, beginning in Hebrews 2 at verse 14, page 1002 in the Church Bibles, 1002. The writer, uh, whose name, of course, we don't know, the writer has just been talking about how Jesus, in order to save us, became one of us, a man of flesh and blood. And we pick up at Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then moving over to chapter 4 and verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14, and it's these three verses that we'll be looking at later in the service this morning. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let's pray. It will be a great help to you to have those verses open, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, 1003 in the Church Bible. Let's uh, pray together as we come to God's Word. Father, we are unable in our own power and wisdom and intelligence to understand Your Word. We cannot do it. It is a spiritual Word which is spiritually discerned. And so our prayer is that Your Holy Spirit would speak these words afresh and would so work in our hearts that we might receive them and know that they are true and bend before them and gladly do your will. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For some people, Jesus is a bit like algebra or trigonometry. Do you remember having to study that stuff at school? And you remember wondering what in the world it had to do with real life? That's the great challenge for the maths teacher, isn't it, to help students to see why these seemingly bizarre ideas might have some kind of practical relevance. Um, For the vast majority of us, it's, it's only if we end up working in a field that specifically uses these things that we ever realize that there's a point to them. There are probably a couple of mathematicians and engineers who will come up to me at the end of the service and extol the wonders of trigonometry. Um, But most of us, most of us leave school, happily forget about these things forever, and never miss them for the rest of our lives. Many people in our culture today 
are vaguely aware of this person called Jesus, but he's a bit like algebra. He's, he's there, but what on earth is the point of him? What, what does he have to do with my life? Why would I ever want to find out more about him? Hence the importance of personal witness. But, but even as Christians, it's all too easy to come to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and, and for the promise of heaven one day, but then to live day by day without any real reference to him, without seeing really deeply what he has to do with real life here and now. So here's the question. Yes, Christ is there, but how is Christ for you? How does he impinge upon your real life in the world? Because Hebrews says he does in deep and daily and life-changing ways. Hebrews expects us to experience Christ as a living and present reality in our lives. And if you've not really known that in your life, maybe, maybe even you've known that He's forgiven your sins, but otherwise He has always felt more absent than present, then maybe these few verses at the end of Hebrews 4 can help you to understand why and help you to do something about it because it doesn't matter if you're 9 or 99 or something in between. You need to know how and why Jesus is for you today. This is not a new challenge. Back in the first century, uh, similar issues faced those to whom the book of Hebrews was first written. How could Jesus be the answer to all their questions? How could He be a living presence with them? I think it's probably very hard for us at this distance to imagine what it must have been like for Jewish believers in the first century to respond to the claims of Christ and to see in Him the fulfillment of all the promises of their Scriptures and to, and to follow through all the implications of that. And if you know your New Testament at all, you'll know that there are many indications that this was a struggle. Was it really right that after all these centuries, the fulfillment of God's covenant promises made to Abraham and to the people of Abraham would come to the whole world? rather than just the Jewish people? Could it really be right that Passover and, and circumcision, which they had observed for centuries, which were central to Jewish identity, had now been fulfilled in something else and, and should no longer be observed? Was it even conceivable that the biblical requirements of sacrifice the thing that made it possible for you to know God despite your sin, that all of that no longer applied? Was there really no need any longer for a temple and for an altar and for the religious ritual and liturgy, which was all they had ever known throughout their lives? How could they approach God without a priest to act as a, a go-between and, and protect them and mediate? And in, in the first century, Christians were sometimes mocked for this pathetic excuse of a religion that they followed. No temple, no priest, no sacrifice, never mind only one God, and something about Him becoming a man of all things, and something about Him then dying of all things. What kind of half-baked religion was this? How could Jesus be the answer? These people that believe in Him are clearly simple. They don't know how the world works. They're on the wrong side of history what they would have said. 
The book of Hebrews provides an emphatic, triumphant reply. You'll maybe know that uh, Hebrews is sometimes referred to as the better letter because it explains to us how Jesus is better than angels, better than priests, better than temples, better than rituals, better than sacrifices. What the pagan religions mocked was actually the glory of the Christian faith. Yes, it is all fulfilled in Christ. He is the founder and finisher of our faith, and He is altogether glorious, and He is alive, and He is for you. And this book is full of encouragement for the Christian in everyday life. So, let's plot our course um, this morning. This is where we're going to go um, from these three verses. These, three, these verses tell us about Jesus, two things He is, two things He does, two things He gives, and two things He asks. Very simple. Um, we'll see that very simply, I think, from these verses. Two things He is, two things He does, two things He gives, and two things He asks. And all of these are ways of telling us that He is for us, that He is for you this week in whatever this week holds. First then, we find in verse 14 two things He is. This isn't, it's not complicated. Just look at the verse, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. There's the two things he is. He is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and he is Jesus, the Son of God. In our Reformed churches, we don't have priests, do we? The Roman Catholic Church does, the Orthodox Church, some Anglican churches, but not us, and that's right. Jesus is the priest for his people, the only one that's needed and the only one there is. It's not only unnecessary to have other priests, it's wrong, because doing so usurps the function of Christ, steals the glory of Christ. But although it's right that we shouldn't have other human priests, it's equally important for us to remember that we do have this one priest. You can easily forget that. Oh, we don't have priests anymore. Yes, we do. We have one. We have one very, very important one. One of the reasons we sometimes struggle to realize how Christ is for us day by day is that we've overlooked His priestly work. It's a remarkable thing. If you were to survey human history, you would find that the vast majority of cultures have had priests in some shape or form. There is an instinct within man to reach out to God, to know God, and there is an instinct to have someone who is set apart and different, who functions as a kind of intermediary, a go-between to, to speak to the gods, speak from the gods, plead with the gods, placate the gods. Even today in the West, um, it might sound very alien, but we have, we have secular versions of this. Our priests are entertainers who make us feel good. They are scientists who control the world around us. They are therapists who analyze us, and they are advertisers who hold the key to our peace and hope. These are our priests. But always we need priests. Now, this is written, this book, to Jewish background believers. So, we need to get into the mindset a little bit. Part of what it's telling them here is that however they might have been mocked by others who do not understand, they do have a priest. They have a great high priest. So, think of what that would have said to these people. They would have been accustomed in years gone by to coming to Jerusalem for the festivals, and the priest would represent them before God. People didn't wander into the presence of God. There, there was a priest set apart 
and he did that work. The temple had, you may know, various courtyards, and, and as you went um, closer and closer towards the center of the temple, each courtyard was more restricted than the one before, and eventually you came to the holy place where the priests did their work, represented the people before the Lord. And then at the heart of the holy place, separated off by a curtain, was the holy of holies, the one place on earth where God would manifest His presence in a direct and focused way. That place was only ever seen by one pair of eyes one day in any one year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter, pass through the curtain, and enter, trembling, carrying the blood of sacrifice. And and he took that blood and, and he sprinkled it on the gold surface which covered the Ark of the Covenant, which, is, which was called the mercy seat. He sprinkled the blood, and he interceded for the people, and he sought forgiveness for their sins. What Hebrews 4 tells us is that that action was, in fact, a rehearsal. It was a pointer. It was what theologians call a type, which is a a representation in miniature of a greater reality. Here in Hebrews 4, we read of that greater reality where the priest passed through the curtain and into the place where the presence of God was symbolized on earth. Jesus passes through the heavens and into the very presence of God in glory. There He takes up His position at the throne of God, And although His saving work is complete forever, it never needs to be repeated, it's important for us to understand, as we were thinking with the children, that Christ's ministry does not end. It is ongoing today for you. Because there in the throne room of heaven, Jesus performs the two main functions of the priest. He offers the atoning sacrifice for sins. He doesn't bring it in His hands like the priests of old. He bears it in Himself. He is the sacrifice. He comes to the Father bearing the marks of His self-offering in hands and feet and side and brow. And this work of Jesus, as Hebrews tells us continually, was a once-for-all work. By one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, Jesus comes, the first aspect of His priestly work, He comes to the Father and He says, here is the sacrifice for sin, for all the sins of all your people throughout all of history. And then the second function of the priest is to intercede for the people, to represent them to God in the light of His sacrifice that united to Him we might be joyfully accepted by God for the sake of Christ. We'll think more about that in a moment, but but for now let's be clear about the main point. The priesthood of Christ is not some complicated, abstract, theological thing To say that Jesus is your great high priest is to say that He is there in heaven for you. He is there for you. And His ongoing ministry today can be to you a source of great confidence and hope. You are not alone. You are never alone. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Secondly, He is Jesus, the Son of God. There's a phrase your eye could easily pass over, but how significant is that phrase, the two parts of it? 
One of the reasons for the greatness of his high priesthood is that he is both God and man. He is Jesus, our Jesus, flesh and blood, one of us. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son from eternity past, great and glorious, all-powerful. He is both of these things. And we need to remember, as we think about the work of Jesus today, that the incarnation is permanent. Jesus didn't take a body just to be here for a while and then leave it behind and go. No, he rose in his body. He is still one of us, while also God, in that great mystery of the two natures of of Jesus. The stunning truth is that the one who occupies the throne of the universe is one of us. And that dual nature means that two things come together wonderfully in him. He understands us because he's Jesus. He's one of us. And he has limitless power to wield on our behalf because he is the son of God. This is why we have confidence to draw near. So two things he is. He is a great high priest. He is Jesus the Son of God. And then secondly, because of that, two things he does. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, and he intercedes for us. I mentioned earlier the universal religious instinct of man, always feeling the need to worship, to have priests, and so on. Uh, But one of the features of instinctive religion, devoid of revelation, is fear. It's usually about protection from gods who are far above us and beyond us and whose attitude towards us can swing wildly depending on whether we've correctly guessed how to pacify them or not. Just one of the features of non-biblical religion. Isn't it an amazing thing that we have a God who is supreme in power and glory to an infinite degree but who is genuinely able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. The same Jesus is the one through whom the universe was made and the one who knows what it is to hit your finger with a hammer and to be exhausted after a hard day's work and to be hurt by something someone in your family said to you and to mourn the loss of a loved one and to have no financial security, and to go through all the things that we go through. It's an amazing thing. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Lest we should think that one so great as this this, this awesome high priest cannot possibly understand our lives We're we're immediately reminded that Jesus has been tested and tempted in every way that we are. He faced the trials of human life, actually more than us. Hunger, poverty, homelessness, fear, sorrow, grief. He was tempted to sin more than us. Jesus was tempted more than us. Why? Because we so often give in. Jesus never did. He endured temptation to, to its ultimate extreme. Resisted it completely. Jesus has been tempted to doubt. 
Jesus was tempted to distrust the Father. Jesus was tempted through weariness and grief, tempted to give in. Now, of course, of course it's true that he, he, he did not experience every single thing that we do in exactly the way that we do. But at the root of all testing and temptation are common themes. The temptation to distrust God, to enthrone self, to go our own way. Jesus has known all these things and not just observed them in us, he has experienced them in himself. And so he has for us, here's your Greek lesson for this morning, he has for us sympathia. No prizes for translation. He has sympathia. It's a, a Greek word made of two parts which mean together suffering. Isn't that an amazing thing. Jesus has for you a feeling of together suffering. There's a, a very similar word from a Latin root, compassion. It means exactly the same thing. Compassion, together suffering. Think of Jesus, the perfect Son of God. He looks upon sinners, as we all are, outrageous rebels against His authority, and He is filled with compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Think of Him weeping at the grave of Lazarus. Think of Him reaching out to the despised Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. Think of Him making provision. This is one of those wonderful moments in the Gospels where Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's about to die. And, and what, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about who is going to look after my mother. And so from the cross, when every word is agony, he's, making, he's speaking to his mother and to, to one of his disciples, look after her. She's your mother. He's your son. amazing thing. Jesus understands. He understands what you experienced this week, what you will experience this coming week. Life with all its joys and frustrations and its energy and weariness and its moments of supreme faith and its, its temptations, He knows, and this is reason to endure because He has stood where you now stand and He sympathizes. And secondly, this is more by implication in this particular text, but, but it's true what we heard earlier. As our great high priest, he intercedes for us because that's what a priest does. There's a, there's a delightful picture in Exodus of the work of Christ for us. Um, Exodus 28, um, don't, don't turn there just now, but if you were to turn there, Exodus 28 is an entire chapter about the clothes which the priests of Israel were to wear. Uh, from robes to sashes to turbans. You, you might not think it was too promising a passage, to be honest. But listen to this. Aaron and his sons were to wear an ephod. It was basically a, a kind of a sleeveless top that came down, down the front, down the back. They were to wear an ephod. Um, it had two shoulder pieces, and each shoulder piece had an onyx stone set into it. The names of six of the tribes of Israel were inscribed on this stone, and the names of the other side, of the other six, on this stone. And Aaron, it says, shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. 
Aaron the priest, as he goes into the presence of God, as he comes to God, he bears the names of the people on his shoulders. And then there was a breast, a breast piece which sat on top of the ephod, and it had 12 stones, and each one of them uh, was engraved with the name of one of the 12 tribes. So, Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. There's, a, there's, there's, a, there's just a little detail from, from a chapter from, from so long ago about the clothes of priests of all things. But is that not just a glorious picture of the work of Christ for His people? The names of His people, born on His shoulders, carried on His heart. This is what He does. He never stops. Your name, there on His heart, as He comes to God. He bears it before the throne of grace. This is Christ for you, in the throne room of heaven. So, listen to this. This is J.C. Ryle. Uh, the Christian is meant to understand that we have a mighty living friend in heaven who not only died for us but rose again, and after rising, he took his seat at the right hand of God to be our advocate and intercessor with the Father until he comes again. We are meant to understand that Christ not only died for us but is alive for us and is actively working on our behalf at this very day. In short, the encouragement held out to believers is the living priesthood of Jesus Christ. We have a mighty living friend in heaven with our name on His heart. Jesus continually applies to us the blood of His sacrifice. And there in heaven, in perfect unity with the purpose of the Father, He ensures that the needs of His people are met day by day. In the magnificent expression of Ephesians 4, 7, grace is continually measured out to us by His gift. He, he looks upon you today, and He says, this is what this one needs today, and he gives it. He looks upon this other one and says, this is what this one needs today, and he gives it. We have a mighty friend in heaven who intercedes for us, who undertakes for us. And because of this, these verses move on to tell us then two things he gives. Verse 16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's the two things he gives, mercy and grace to help in time of need. He gives mercy. There's no end to that. It's not something he did for you once. God is continually and unreasonably merciful withholding from us the judgment we deserve, bestowing on us goodness that we don't. He gives us mercy when we're at our worst, and He gives us mercy when we're at our best, because we need it then too. But you notice where it is that we're coming? An amazing thing here, over this universe, in the highest heights of glory, there is a throne there is a king who reigns over all things in supreme power and majesty and magnificence. 
His might is beyond measure, and His wisdom beyond fathoming, and His purity beyond comprehension. His judgments are perfect, and He has promised that He will one day defeat His enemies and judge the world. But what is this throne called? There in verse 16. It's called the throne of grace. The throne of grace. No one had... No one ever had a greater sense of the majesty of God than Calvin, but Calvin wrote that the throne of God is not arrayed in naked majesty to confound us, but is adorned with a new name, even that of grace. This great God who rules is love itself. His heart filled with compassion and tender mercy. He is a God who loves to give, and the gospel calls us to come to Him to receive I mentioned earlier that in, in days of old when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, there covering the Ark of the Covenant was this gold plate, and it was called the mercy seat. It was the place where the blood was received that the people might be forgiven. And now we discover, Hebrews 4, that the throne room of heaven itself shimmers and shines with all the glory and beauty of mercy sin atoned for, removed from us, perfect love joyfully poured out upon the undeserving. The throne of the universe is a throne of grace. He gives mercy, and secondly, it says that He gives grace to help in time of need. This is grace in the sense of strengthening power. The timing is significant, that reference to time. John Piper translates this as grace for a well-timed help. At the moment you need Him, Christ is for you. That, that does not mean that He will always do whatever you want Him to do, whenever you want Him to do it. But it does mean that He always gives what we need when we need it. God's timings can seem strange to us, can't they? Many things in life. We, we usually know when we need something, and it's usually right this minute, isn't it? God's timings can seem strange, but He is always right. He is never early, and He is never late. Do you remember that, um, that lovely picture from Deuteronomy 33? That picture of, of who God is, who, who God is for you. There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help through the skies and His majesty. An amazing thing. God there, ready. And He says, my child needs me. And he, and he comes. He rides through the heavens to the help of those who need Him. Amazing thing. The eternal God is your dwelling place, it says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. God is a rapid responder when His people are in need. He comes with grace to help. So in both of these ways then, the mercy that saves us and the grace that equips and empowers us, Christ is our great high priest, sufficient to meet the needs of His people. And then finally, because of who Jesus is and what He does and what He gives, there are finally two things He asks. They're not really demands. They're, they're invitations. They're gifts even. Each one begins, let us do something. So, since we have this great high priest, let us, end of verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. And verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near 
to the throne of grace. So here's the invitation, the two things he asks. Hold on to him firmly and come to him confidently. Firstly, hold firmly to your faith. We're to hold fast our confession. The pagans may laugh at us for our strange religious ways, but we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We have Jesus, the Son of God, who is better by far than anything this world offers. We have His sympathy and His intercession. We have His mercy and His grace to help in time of need, and so we will hold fast to our confession. We will not depart from what we have known to be true. We will believe God's Word. We will trust the gospel. We will recite the Apostles' Creed, as millions have done before us, and as the Christian church will continue to do until Christ comes. We will hold fast and hold firm, not because we are strong, but because He is, because He will hold us fast. Hold firmly to your faith. And secondly, come to Him with confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How do you think of God? In a sense, I hope that when I say that, I hope that all sorts of things come into your mind. I hope that you think of Him as glorious, holy, beautiful, powerful, wise, pure, awesome. But, but how I hope that in and through it all, there is a strong sense that this God is your perfect Father, loving you with a perfect love, uh, and one to whom you can come in the confidence of His love and His provision for you in Christ and His joyful acceptance of you. I hope that you have a humble confidence in approaching this God, not the crass silliness of those who like to talk about the man upstairs and, and stuff like that. that that's, that's not confidence in coming to God. That's just blasphemy. What I'm talking about is the, the glad reverence of one whose heart has been both awed and captivated by the living God. I'm talking about what happens when you come to know and experience Christ for you. And I hope too, finally, that you can apply that thought specifically to prayer, which is probably the main application of verse 16. Have you sinned much and worry about what God thinks of you? Have you fallen often? Have you failed to pray in the past and you're ashamed? Come with confidence, he says. Not in yourself. That's not the point. It's not what it's about. Come with confidence in Christ. It's a throne of grace. This is a place of mercy so that whatever you have done does not need to cling to you. There is timely help so that whatever you face, you need never be alone. So hear these words of Jesus. These words of courage and comfort for those who feel themselves sinners, unworthy, always resolving, but always failing. He says to you, come to the throne. Come with confidence. I am your great high priest. You are safe. You are loved. 
I am for you. Let's pray. God, our Father, we give thanks for our great high priest. We give thanks for this one who is, who is everything to us, everything for us. The one apart from whom we are, we are lost and helpless. But the one in whom we are loved, accepted, received, strengthened, encouraged. Father, help us to hear these invitations of your word. Help us to respond to these things, to hold firmly to our confession. That we might not waver when difficult circumstances arise, but might hold to what we have known to be true. And, and most of all, might, might hold to Christ. Father, may this not be a some kind of abstract theological statement. May it be that, that we, are, we, we hold to him even as he holds on to us. And we hold to this confession. And may we come to you then with confidence. We want to pray especially for our prayer life as a congregation and as individuals. You know how, how much we struggle, how often we struggle with this. I pray that you might forgive us for our failings, and that you might so work in us by your Holy Spirit that we would find within us rising up a desire to know you more and a desire, therefore, to speak to you more. Even as we hear you speaking to us in your word, that we want to respond, we want to come to you. We hear these invitations Come with confidence, approach with boldness, cast all your burdens here. May we hear these things and respond gladly. Teach us to pray. Give us hearts to pray. And in and through it all, give us hearts that know that Christ is for us. Make this real to each one of us. Make it real today. Make it real tomorrow, this week. In and through all that we do, Christ for us. For in his name we ask it. Amen.